All right, church, it's, uh, I'm glad you came back. I intentionally uh, kicked over your stack of blocks last week, and I intend on stacking those things back up, uh, hopefully with or providing all of us with a better picture of the glory of Christ and how God has designed the church in order that He alone might receive all the glory and honor and praise. That's my goal. Uh, we'll see if we get there or not. But I trust you have, again, your copy of God's Word. Let me ask you to turn to a couple of different places. Obviously, you're in Romans 14, but let me ask you to run off to Ephesians chapter 4 for just a few moments. Uh, I love Ephesians. It is in many ways the abbreviated and condensed version of Romans. And so he very simply and plainly and very quickly lays out a truth that helps us understand Romans 14 and 15. I do not want us to forget, though, that we are still looking at a love that is unhypocritical. We've simply gotten very particular with our application of it because we are learning how to apply an unhypocritical love in the context of the body. And God has given us a context with our differing convictions and opinions in which enables us to apply that unhypocritical love. So we are working through, um, we're working through some difficult things that have long left, in my opinion, the body of Christ that I truly hope that we take it up once again. But let me start with the things that God has done, the things in which we share. God has done some particular things in relationship to our union with, uh, our union with us that we share that we're exactly the same in. And Paul lays out that list for us in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, if you'll notice that with me. Paul writes these words, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Those particular things we share in gloriously in common. There is no difference. We all came the same way. We all came to the same name. And we all came to the same place. And that is in relationship with God. And it's a wonderful thing, and I, I did want to spend, I could not just leave those things out on the table like that and not expound them a little bit further. So I do this morning, in, in way of introducing our differences, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about those things in which we are not different at all, not one iota. And the first of those that he mentions is one body or one church, and that is the church universal. We all who have been born again are a part of the same church, and it is God's church. And we'll discover that and see that when I turn to 1 Corinthians. It's His church. And we've divided His church up in unbelievably different ways, and we could argue and debate the benefit of denominations, but the majority has become elitist, if you will, in their opinion about their particular denomination. And we have forgotten that we are on God's role in God's church. He knows them all by name. There are no false or fake members a part of His church, a part of the body of Christ. We all have that in common. We all attend, if you will, one church. And it is the church of the living God. We all share in one spirit, the Holy Spirit. He is the one of all those who have been born again who called them to Christ. He is the one who sealed them in Christ. And He is the one who transforms us into the image of Christ as we walk in the faith. We share in that. It is one Spirit that fills us, one Spirit that seals us, one Spirit that motivates us in the faith. There is no difference there. We all share in one hope, and He is the God of hope. And that hope is, in the text, expressed in so many different ways. We preach the message of hope. It is the gospel message, and it is a message that proclaims hope 
to a lost and dying world. It is one message. There is no difference whatsoever in the message that we proclaim. We all hope for resurrection. We all hope of salvation. We all hope of righteousness. We all hope for eternal life. Paul communicates all of that in a number of different places. We all have the same hope for the return of Christ. We all hope for glory. We all hope in God. But I think the most references to our hope is we all have our hope because of our union in Christ. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 1.12, all our hopes are, can be summed up with this. We have a hope in Christ. Because it's because of Him that all this hope has come to us. But there's just one hope. There's just one Lord. There is just one Son. There is just one Savior. And if we are truly born again, we've been saved by that one Lord and one Savior. There is not two. There is but one way. There is but one truth. And there is but one life. And it is all bound up in one person, the Holy Son of God. And I have to expound that one a little bit more because you have to get the who and the what right of this one Lord. You have to understand who He is as the eternal Son of God. And there's many things that I could go on and talk about. In fact, let's go one other place. Stay in Ephesians 4. We'll be right back. But run with me to 2 John. I want to show you this because we, we've gotten so careless with the things that people say about Jesus, and we ought to be much more careful with what the Bible teaches about Jesus. In fact, what John says here in 2 John would not be accepted in the church today. They would say, oh, you're being much too particular about the Christ. But notice 2 John in verse 7, all the way near the end. Let me read just three verses. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Do you understand what he's saying there? If you hold to the lie that Jesus did not come in the flesh, you're not of God. And if someone made that statement today and someone set them aside, they would say, oh, you're being way too critical, way too judgmental, way too obscure, way too tight in particular in your theology. John's like, Having been filled with the Spirit of God, let me write this for you. If you don't believe Jesus came in the flesh, you're not of God. That's what I said, what I said a couple of weeks ago about Martin Luther King Jr., who didn't believe in the resurrection. Beloved, that's the gospel. He died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And if you don't hold what the Scriptures say about the Christ... You're not a part of God. These are things in which we share. And you better get who Jesus is right. And you better get what Jesus did right. For what Jesus did was die on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for your sins. You have to get that right. Because there's just one Savior. And He is one person. And what He did is very particular. And we must understand it. There's one faith as you turn back to Ephesians 4. And again, this is another term that I could expound greatly, but I'll leave it with the gospel message that we preach. There's only one way to be right with God, and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 1 and verse 6, if you preach a different gospel of which there is no other, you ought to be eternally cut off. You ought to be condemned. And he goes on to say, I don't care if it's angels or, or me. If I preach a different gospel than the true gospel, then I have no part with God. There is but one faith, and it's faith alone in Christ alone. 
We don't sit at the table of someone who believes faith plus anything else. We're only one with those who believe in faith alone apart from works. We are saved by what Christ and Christ alone has done and in that we trust and in no other thing. There's one baptism which is in Christ. Paul writes in Romans 6 and verse 4, Therefore we've been buried with Christ through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. There's one baptism and that is into Christ. By way of spirit and by way of water there's only one baptism. There's not two. There's only one God and Father. The God who created the heavens and the earth. The one who has sent His Son Again, as atonement for our sins. He only has one name. It's not Allah. There is one God, one Father who had one Son. And that one God and one Father created the heavens and the earth with His spoken word and then He sent the living word to deliver us and save us. One God, one Father. Not many gods by any stretch of the imagination. There's just one. And I would add one to this list to which you quickly should ears perk up and eyes draw tight for just a second. But Paul didn't have this yet, but we do. And it's the book in your lap. There is one holy word that we share and that we have in common. And when you begin to consider the other false religions of the world... You think about the Jehovah's Witness rely on Charles Russell. The Mormons rely on Joseph Smith. The Muslims rely on Muhammad. But we rely on God and God alone and His Word and His Word alone. So I would add that to Paul's list and I, I don't believe I've ever done that in all my years of preaching, but I, I'm absolutely convinced that he would agree. That book in your lap is one. And it is the one thing that we share of all these other things that we share in common. There's no differences here. They're all the same for all of us. But if you're back in Ephesians 4, there are things that God has done in the forming of our relationship with one another. And they are very diverse When He created community, He created diversity. Just like I said last week, because only in diversity can you have unity. And He's done this all over the place. Let me give you just a few examples. And I drew upon some of these last week. You look at a husband and a wife and consider how diverse they are and realize at a wedding, God takes the two and He makes them one. When you think about Jew and Gentile, as you get on into the book of Ephesians, Paul's in prison when he's writing this letter, and it dawns on him that God has already done what Paul wants to do. He's broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, and he's made Jew and Gentile one new man. And I think that's why Paul goes on and on and on in Ephesians, not realizing you need to put a period somewhere, man. But he's absolutely excited about what God has done in bringing two extremely diverse peoples, Jews and Gentiles, and bringing them together in Christ and making them one. Paul's blown away by that. When you think about the diversity in the gospel, God has bound together the unholy and the holy. We could not be more different. But in the grace of God, through the work of Christ on Calvary, the two that are most far apart are brought together and bound in Him. You see how God is working here. And so when you consider the church, He intentionally leaves diversity in order that we might experience unity around one person. There's only one thing, one person in the body of Christ that makes us one, and it is Christ Himself. Let me show you the glory here, if I may. Go back. You're already in Ephesians. Notice with me again at verse 4. There's one body, one spirit, right? All these ones, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, verse 5. One God and Father. But notice verse 7, but. In other words, I'm about to change direction in verse 7. And so 
this hard adversity, this hard stop in the road. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, God has gifted the body extremely with uniqueness and diversity on purpose. We share all these wonderful things, but when it comes to the, the point of gifts, God says, I went nuts. You all have something different that can benefit the whole. And so in giftings, I, I became very diverse. You don't share these things. You're very different in these things. And I'll give you again three reasons for all this diversity within the body. I'll lay out the words and then I'll come back and explain to them. Here's the reasons God has done this. Maturity, unity, and glory. Maternity, I mean maturity, unity, and glory. And let me explain those three. God has given us a diversity of giftings because a maturity needs to be drawn in which we model the character of Christ ourselves. I mean, the only thing to be faithful to the Lord that we can do with all this diversity is to respond to one another in love. We're so very different. And so the proper response with all this diversity is to love one another. And in modeling that character, God has designed it so that we might grow and mature in such a way. Let me give you another explanation because I really want you to understand this. Again, let me take you through the illustration of the human body like I did last week. If we were all an ear, what could we do? One thing. We could hear. And of little use we would be to the kingdom of God. But when you look at the human body, we've got all kinds of parts and pieces that can do an amazing number of things. And when we respond to that in absolute unity, there is a growing up and a maturing of the body of Christ. Therefore, we're not all in ear. We're all diverse in our giftings in order that we might come together in a unity and grow up in a maturity. You want to see an immature Christian? Find someone who does not attend church on a regular basis, who is not a part faithfully of a body of Christ, and you will find an immature believer. I just model at the mechanics of God and the wisdom of God in designing the church. He's made it so that we can only mature as we function properly as a body. I'm amazed at the design. I can't even explain it. I just stand back and look at what He has done. And I know it to be true. So that's the maturity as we model the character of Christ. But again, I'll go back to the word that I just mentioned, a unity in which we are bound by Christ. We need each other, and God has designed it that way. We don't function properly when a part of the body decides it's dead and no longer functioning. You stump a toe, does not the whole body hurt? You remove a hand, does that not affect the functioning of the entire body? But when the body exercises its diversity in its particular giftings in the right way, we mature and we grow as a whole. So again, diversity comes about because of maturity, because of unity, and finally because of glory. Because the one thing that makes us one is Christ himself. Let me read you the text and now it'll make sense to you. Look in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Notice verse 12. Let me steal the first few verses. For the equipping of the saints, he gave, he gave, he gave in verse 11. Now verse 13, until we all attain to the, here's that word, unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful, deceitful scheming. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. 
And so when you look at all that God has done in giftings to create this diversity, He's done it for the sake of maturity. He's done it for the purpose of unity. And He's done it for the ultimate sake of glory that we might glory in the Son of God because He's the head. He's the glorious one. He's the one who has made us one. So that's a picture of diversity. But now as you head back to Romans, the diversity we see in Ephesians 4 is not the only form of diversity God has ordained within the body. In Romans 14, there is a diversity of devotion. And this one is absolutely fascinating to us. We are diverse in the way that we express our piety and devotion to God. We have different convictions and opinions in regard to these things. And again, you have to ask the question, why in the world would God allow a group of people to have a diversity of convictions and a diversity of opinions in regard to some matter? And I'll bring you back to the same words. For the purpose of maturity, for the purpose of unity, and for the purpose ultimately of glory. When we think about the maturity in looking at Romans chapter 14. If you'll notice with me, Paul's very first words in verse 14. This is the great concern. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. And he ends with that very same thought over in Romans 15 verse 7. Therefore accept one another. And what's the next three words of verse 7? Just as Christ has accepted us. Immediately you see that God's going to use these differing convictions and differing opinions for the purpose that we might be given the opportunity to model the very character of Christ. Because we were very different from Him, yet He has worked in such a way as to accept us and receive us. And the Lord says, I've given you that same opportunity within the body of Christ. I've ordained that you would have different convictions and opinions about certain things in order that you might be motivated to model the character of your head as He has received you, as He has accepted you. Now you ought to accept one another. And as we learn to do that, we grow up because we become more like Christ. So when you begin to look at all these Verses and all these truths that we find in 14 and 15, look at the broader picture, look at the purpose. And one of those purposes is that we might become more like Him. And when I think about Him accepting me, it still leaves me completely without words. For what reason would He accept me? I've never given Him any. And yet, we're not very far apart. We do have different convictions and we do have different opinions. And when we look beyond those and past those and not allow those things to divide us, yet we receive one another wholeheartedly and accept one another. God is glorified because we are doing the very thing His Son has done for us. And the more we look like the Son, the more mature we are as followers of Christ. That's what we're trying to do here. Look like Christ. And so the Lord says, I've designed the opportunity within the body itself, right? Second reason, like I said, not just maturity, but for the purpose of unity in which we are bound by Christ. Look over in Romans 15, verse 5, verse 6. Romans 15, verse 5 and verse 6. This is his grand conclusion to this section. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he created diversity again for the purpose of unity. With one voice, we're supposed to glorify one God and one God, one God and one Father with a like mind. With all this diversity, His purpose is to bring us together in unity. 
And again, that's not possible with conformity. Unity is only possible when God has created diversity. And the last thing in the way of introduction, maturity, unity, and the glory in which we exalt in Christ. You have to ask the question, and I do want to stay here for just a little bit. What is the one thing that brings us together? Is it our convictions? Is it our opinions? Have we been brought together for any other reason than Christ? And the answer to that is no. And as I was thinking about this over the last couple of weeks, a picture came up to my mind of if, what if the enemy was completely ignorant of the fact of why God has made us the way that he made us and he sent in a spy a spy to examine us over a great number of months to see how he might tear us down. And the spy goes back to the enemy and the enemy asks him, what's the one thing that binds them together? Is it the way that they dress? And the spy would go, no, it's certainly not the way that they dress. They dress very differently. One might wear this, another might wear that. I don't know. Are they bound by their political opinions? Oh, absolutely not. I, I, while I was there, I, I, I viewed some different opinions within the context of the body. I, I couldn't actually say all of them had the same opinion about. Were they bound by their cultural convictions? Did they have the same mind regarding those? No, not, not really. I, I can't say that they were bound by their cultural convictions about political things. Were they bound by music? Well, even though I, I found a great number of them absolutely committed to one style, as you begin to move among them, you realize that they're not in absolute agreement over particular songs that they sing or the particular ways in which they sing them. Are they bound by the man behind the pulpit? Do they follow his convictions and his opinions? Well, well, you know, I would go to particular places and the guy behind the pulpit would preach his convictions and I guess... Many within the body would follow those, but when you begin to look throughout the body of Christ and see, no, they're not all in agreement about his... Because he had convictions about how women ought to dress and how they ought not to cut their hair. But, you know, there's others had different opinions and convictions about that. So I can't say that they were following the opinions and convictions of one man. Then you need to tell me what it is they're bound by in order that we might rip them apart. To which the spy would report, Oh, you can't. And he would go, why can't we? And the spy would report, because they're bound by one that's much stronger than you. The one thing that binds them together is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've never been able to rip him apart or divide him. Church, why do you think we've been here for 2,000 years with all the enemies that we've had? over that period of time. Why hasn't North Korea been able to exterminate the church? Why couldn't Hitler do away with the people of God? Why can't we even, why can't the world even do away with this book? And I'll tell you why we will not go anywhere until the return of Christ, no matter what may come, because we are bound by the eternal Son and you cannot divide Him and you cannot separate Him and you cannot tear Him apart. And so when Paul talks about all this diversity that we see, we have to learn to operate properly within the context of it to glory in Christ because God has designed it in such a way as nothing may receive glory except the Son. When we get to 1 Corinthians, if the Lord allows us to, you know what they gloried in? They gloried in the giftings. They gloried in the men who could preach the word in a particular way and they divided themselves up according to the men. They gloried in the ability to speak in tongues and they marveled at that and they would glory in their, their abilities to do those particular things. And Paul's just... Absolutely frustrated. He loves them dearly, but he tells them those are not things we glory in at all. You're glorying in the wrong things. The things that you ought to glory in, 
is the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we go through 14 and 15 that I'm actually now about to do, we have to realize how desperately we need to take hold of these things and walk in this actually one thing because the only thing that he's asking us to do is to receive one another and to accept one another in spite of our varying convictions and opinions about things. In one particular week, I'll walk through a number of convictions and opinions as we walk through 14 and 15. I don't intend to do that this morning because I do need to actually go ahead and lay out some things. But Paul's about to give us basically a list of dangers and pitfalls of how we can destroy what God is trying to do in the church. He actually makes that statement, don't destroy the work of God. And he goes through a number of ways in which we do that. But those are the negatives. I want you to focus on the one positive that we respond to these differences with great acceptance. And remember that word that I've divided up for you for the last couple of weeks is not simply acceptance. And I told you that's such a terrible word. If we were back in Ephesians, the word that he uses before he starts down that list of one is the one, the word tolerate, another terrible word. It's the word that you actually get up under on the weight bench and get the weight and, and, and you're willing to bear the load. And then he said, that's how I want you to respond to one another. I made you different. Now bear the load with one another. Don't give up on one another. We translate that tolerate. It's terrible. In this text, we translate that word accept. And again, it's not. It's to just to draw near and to receive, to lay hold of. And the reason that I'm so passionate about this is because I'm watching the church in so many ways, in a way that I mentioned last week, being torn apart, dividing one another rather than receiving one another. The enemy's not doing a thing. We're doing it within the own body. We're trying to tear ourselves apart based on convictions and opinions, and we're not trusting and resting in the one who has made us one. And we have to do that. We have to understand our responsibility to hold tightly to one another who share in all of those common things in Christ. Now look at 14.1. Paul, let's actually get to the text. Paul reduces all these differences down to two different categories. 14.1, now accept the one who is weak in faith. 15.1, now we who are strong. So you have the weak and the strong. But let me remind you, it's not quite that simple. Because depending on the category or the, or the conviction that we bring up, you might find yourself in one or two of those different categories. He's just summarizing things for you. Therefore, in some particular areas, you might be strong. In other particular areas, you might be weak. And so we need to understand both categories in order that you might understand the pitfalls that you could succumb to and undo the work of God in the body of Christ. And so the first thing that I need to define for you is what does it mean to be weak in faith? And let me quickly say he's not talking about sin. Weak in faith is not someone who's struggling with sin. There are references using the word weak that do talk about that. Christ talks about that in Matthew 26 when He tells the disciples, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. Now that's a different context for the word weak. If you track Paul all the way through the book of Romans, you know for Paul, sin should bring about repentance. He never makes concessions. He never makes or allows for indulgences. He never allows for excuses in regard to sin. For Paul, that's not what he's talking about here. In fact, he said in Romans 8 and 13, If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. No indulgences in Romans. It's not here. No excuses, no concessions. Just the hard truth about sin in your life, and you better go to battle every day. It is a battle, beloved. But that's not weak in faith. Weak in faith is not in regard to the great doctrines of God. He just spent eight chapters 
Romans 1 through 8 talking about the gospel. And it's not somebody who's weak in regard to the gospel. They understand the doctrines of the faith. They're not wavering there. They're not saying, well, I believe that there's actually two ways to heaven. No, not at all is he talking about that. When he talks about weak in faith, what he's talking about is someone who has a weak conscience. Someone who is filled with doubt about particular things. Notice chapter 14, verse 23. He says, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is a sin. Those are the particular individuals that he's addressing here. They're filled with fear. Can I do this? Can I not do this? I feel so convicted about that. I can't participate in that. I can't believe you would participate in that. And so on and on it goes as their faith tries to mature. They're absolutely filled with doubt. They're filled with fear. Their conscience convicts them at every turn. They're afraid to speak. They're afraid to do. They're afraid to go. And frankly, all of us probably find ourselves in that category at some time and we may not even realize it. That's someone who's weak in faith or weak in conscience. And I bet you had a kid that way. Not all your kids are that way. It's a blessing to have one that way. They just spill their heart out to you. As soon as they tell a lie, tears start rolling down their face and they go, I just told a lie. Conviction comes quickly and easily for them, right? It's in relationship to that, not totally that, but you get the picture. So when you talk about someone who is strong, you're talking about those who understand their freedoms in Christ. They understand they've been justified by Christ and Christ alone. They're not bettering their position with God. They trust in what He has done on their behalf and they've been set free in a number of areas to enjoy some things. You're like, how do you know that? Well, look at Paul's two examples in chapter 14. Notice what he says in verse 2. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. And you're like, is that Jews or Gentiles? Paul doesn't tell us. And he does that for a reason. Because he's not concerned about those categories. He's concerned about the weak and the strong, those particular categories. And I can put a Jew or a Gentile in that category. You know how a Jew goes? They had dietary restrictions. There was particular meats that they could not eat. And so when they come to faith in Christ and Peter preaches that message, Jesus said we could eat anything. And a Jew would go, but you don't understand how I've been raised. My father taught me this. My grandfather taught me this. My great-grandfather always did this. I can go back as far as you want to go that my family don't eat that. And when Paul explains it to them, but you can now, and they go, I can't. I'm just overwhelmed with conviction about that. Or I could say that it's a Gentile who used to sacrifice animals to their idols, and it would be particular types of animals that would represent particular types of meat. And they come over to your house who's a Christian, and here they take out a, a goat, for instance, and you're going to have goat that night, and it's sitting on the table, and you go, I, I can't eat that. And you go, well, why can't you eat this? And you go, we always sacrifice goats to our idols, and you're going to eat that? I would never let that kind of meat cross my lips. And you go, you don't understand. Christ has set us free from all that. We can enjoy anything we want. And you go, I can't enjoy it because I'm deeply convicted by that. This is what we're talking about. There's another example here. If you look down in in verse 4, or I'm sorry, verse 5. One person regards one day above another and another regards every day alike. Again, I could put Jew and Gentile in here. They'll both fit. We can use the Sabbath if you want. It doesn't matter. Or we could use the Lord's Day. It really doesn't matter. I wish you all shared my convictions and opinions about the Lord's Day. Because if you did, you would always be here. Always. And not only that, none of us would get distracted on the Lord's Day. 
All of us would gather here for worship and then we would go to our homes together where the TV wouldn't cut on, where our telephones wouldn't be a part of our lives for that particular day. And we'd eat at the table together. We'd enjoy each other and we would talk about the things of Christ. We would talk about the Word of God every Lord's Day. And then somebody would walk over to the piano and begin to play and we'd just sing praises to God. If we had my convictions and my opinions about the Lord's Day, and no, that's not every Lord's Day for me, but if you would encourage me in that, I would run with it. But some people have convictions and opinions about the Sabbath day. It's Saturday, dude. It's not Sunday. Some people have convictions and opinions about special days that we ought to observe. Some people say, you know what? Every day to the glory of God. Every day to the glory of God. You want me to worship on Monday? I'll be there. Tuesday, no problem. Wednesday, I've already cleared my calendar. I'm worshiping God every day. Now here comes the problem, and you already know what it is. Judgmentalism creeps in your heart because of your convictions and your opinions about a particular thing. I can't believe what they do on the Lord's day. I can't believe that those people won't recognize the Sabbath. And then all of a sudden you get the opinion that you're the remnant. You're the remnant. I wouldn't dare touch meat. I wouldn't go near meat. I followed the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament to the letter. Do do y'all know that there's actually a group of people uh, down in the valley that have started this business again? They're following the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. And the problem with that is you begin to view yourself as more holy, as being more pious, more devoted, and everybody should be doing the particular things that I do. We could bring it into particular days. We can bring it into all kinds of different things. And again, I intend to do that. But Paul says that the moment that you lift yourself up and put someone else down, not because of sin, hear me well, and I I had that question this morning and I dearly appreciate the question. We're not talking about differences in convictions and opinions regarding sin. That's not on the table. We're talking about differences of convictions and opinion regarding our piety and our devotion to God. And I might come under the impression that I'm much more pious than any of you because I literally get up early every morning, almost always before the sun comes up, and I spend time with the Lord. I don't care what's going on that day. And I read a great deal, and I'm learning to pray even as much as I read. And I could say, that's the measure. That's the standard. And until you reach my standard, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. I'll use the example of women one Sunday. Preachers preach their convictions and opinions about how a woman ought to dress or how she ought to look in church. And until a woman meets his particular standard, you're not worth the kingdom of heaven. It's not like that. Now on the flip side of this, we could turn this thing around and go, well, I'm free in Christ. I understand what Jesus has done. I understand that I am justified by Him and Him alone. And those people running around with all their convictions and all their opinions are about to drive me crazy. Those hyper-fundamentalists, I get so tired of their opinions. Hey, if you don't go to church on Sunday, they'll call you. And they'll make you feel about that tall. And if you miss twice, well, you're gone. Believe it or not, you used to actually do that. But again, my convictions and opinions lie much closer in that direction than the other. See, we, we get this impression that what we do and what we think is the standard for all things. And that's how the body is being torn down by those within, not those without. They don't even know what's going on. And Paul says, don't do that. And again, he gives us a list. In the first list I've already given you, he says, don't judge. And he gives us a number of reasons not to judge. And if you'll notice with me, look at verse 4 first. The reasons that you can't do this. 
Who are you to judge the servant of another? That's the first thought. And he picks it back up in verse 7 and verse 8. For not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. That's the first reason that you can't have this judgmental attitude toward others and think you set the bar. Because they don't belong to you. They belong to Him. He is their Master and He is their Lord. So you need to get over yourself. And I tell that myself all the time. You're not my people. I love you with a growing love. But you belong to God. And I ought to treat you with the highest respect and the greatest humility for you are a holy people who belong to the Creator of the heavens and the earth. How dare I lay claim to any one of you? You're not mine. You belong to Him. That's why I love how 1 Corinthians starts out. This is the church of God. And I've told you before, as far as denominations go, the church of God actually wins. Because we literally are the church of God. We belong to Him. The second reason that He gives us is God makes us stand by His grace. Notice verse 3. I'll read through it very quickly. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. Notice, for God has accepted him. Verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another to his own master? He stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Second reason you don't judge because we all stand by grace and grace alone. But that's not what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to go around and determine whether or not you're going to stand based on my convictions and my opinions. I don't think Chris will stand. He don't live his life like I live. He's not devoted to the Word of God like I am. He's not devoted to evangelism like I am. I don't think he'll stand. And the Lord says, really? Number one, he doesn't belong to you. Number two, if he stands, I make him stand. And he will stand because I've made him to stand. So drop this attitude of walking around trying to determine whether or not so-and-so is going to stand. We stand by grace and grace alone. But see, if you're filled with this censorious attitude toward others, you're convinced that you're making yourself stand based on your diet, based on your observance, based on your conviction, based on how you address, based on whether or not you celebrate Christmas, based on whether or not you homeschool your kids, and on and on and on and on it goes. You don't stand based on any of those things. God makes you stand based on grace, period. And the last thing is, is a harsh reality that we all need to be reminded of. God will judge every man. Notice verse 10 through 12. He asks the question, why in the world do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it stands written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul's like, let me give you three reasons why you need to change your attitude towards your brothers. Number one, they don't belong to you. Number two, they'll stand based on whether or not I've made them to stand. And number three, if you're worried about judgment, don't sweat that. Every one of you, every single one of you will stand before me in the judgment. Now, I do have to draw a line to stop there somewhere, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to draw it right there because he gives us reason after reason after reason that I intend to walk through every reason, but I want to begin to lay this foundation in your heart. The absolute goal and point of 14 and 15 is that you might receive one another. So what I need you to begin to do is begin to realize that there are things that have made us one in Christ. And it's everything that He has done. 
we got one God and one Father, and there's no difference in that. And I could go on and on down the list. We've got one faith. We've got one baptism. We've got one Lord, one Spirit. We're all a part of one body, and in those things are absolutely common. But when we get outside of that, things look very different. And the frustration is most churches are designed around conformity and not unity. I think many of you are here I don't know, I won't say most. Many of you are here because of particular ways that we do things. And let me tell you something, I really enjoy the particular ways that we do things. But we have to really be careful about that because I don't come up here and preach my convictions and opinions about anything. I can't wait till we get to women's dress because Scripture deals with that so thoroughly and you'll get a great picture of exactly what I'm talking about. But conformity doesn't get it and it'll never get it because you never get more mature than the man standing behind the pulpit. And I want you to be so much more mature than me. My brother and I were talking about your kids before we started this morning. Oh, I've got high hopes for your kids. I've got glorious hope for your kids. And I don't want them to be like me. I want them to stand on your shoulders. I want them to start where you stopped. And I want them to go on and on to the glory of God so that your grandkids can stand on their shoulders and will reach heights of glory that we've never known before. That's why when we begin to examine, and I want you to go ahead and do this, your convictions and your opinions, you'll find out that you should hold those dearly. They matter. But the moment that you begin to force those on other people is the moment that you begin to tear down the body of Christ. Because we're supposed to look around those and cling to the one thing that has brought us together as one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we begin to do that, we're going to look more and more and more like him the way we go. Because we'll love like him. We'll walk like him. All to his glory. Let me stop there and let's pray.